Welcome back everyone to the home Bible study. Uh, we are currently studying in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 2. I have to be careful to make sure I mention where we are as we progress. Uh, we ended actually uh, in chapter 2 last time and we're going to start in chapter 3. So uh, hopefully you're caught up and you're listening to these in order and they make some kind of sense um, and uh, that's kind of our goal obviously so last time we saw I think some very interesting things about the letter to the Hebrews and the revelation that we uh, are receiving through this <clears throat> this letter now keep in mind that these are Hebrew believers they are living in the time of Christ so some of these people um personally saw him they know his family um it's a very different time than the time we live in right now being so far removed from that time so keep that in mind that they had a closer link to the old testament um, they were a nation that was set apart by god to be his nation they were a testimony to the world and they had lived in this, the glory of that for many, many years. And so uh, there's some things that they might take for granted that are completely foreign to us. So uh, one of those things, I think, is the connection to the fathers. It was mentioned in verse one. That's how it opened. God, who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, we're not uh, so linked as a people by fathers or the ancient ones that have, you know, established us as a nation like Abraham and Moses and the people that they were connected to in the, the history of the Old Testament was their history. It wasn't just history in a book. It wasn't the history of other people. It was their history. They had people who could say, I'm a descendant of Moses or Aaron. And so they knew that they kept those um, records in the temple. So it was a very much a part of who they were as a people. They uh, practiced the or uh, the feasts, particularly Yom Kippur, the feast of Passover every year, so that all of these things were ingrained into their uh, society and them as a people. So uh, keep that in mind that this letter was written to the Hebrew people with an emphasis upon their connection to God historically and now this letter explains how jesus fits into that um, story how the, he fits into the history how that that history was all him and the future that's to come is all him so this needs to be explained and that's what this letter is attempting to do so in verse 18 of chapter 2, the last verse we studied, it says, For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So this says 
it all to me that God suffered. Um, those two things, those two words don't seem to go together uh, because the best part about being God is that you don't suffer. You're God. But we, the God that we create in our minds is very different from the true and living God that exists. And if there's nothing else that you take, don't you take from this uh, study, you need to take that from it, that um, the God in your mind, the God in the minds of man and mankind, the God, the gods that we create tend to be like us. We make deities like ourselves and we take our weaknesses or our perceived weaknesses out and leave everything else. And that becomes the deities that we create. You can see that in any religion. <clears throat> but that's not the God of the Bible. The real living and true God is much more complicated, uh, higher and more exalted than our minds are able to create. And... That's why we would not create a God who suffers. But um, the true and living God has presented himself as one who suffers. He bears the marks in his body of his suffering forever. And that's what we saw in our last study. Now we're going to see the writer building on that but building on it in a way that is very specific to the Hebrew people. So he starts off in verse three and he says, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a little time and look at this. He's saying, based on all the things I've told you about what Jesus has accomplished, that he is now the lamb that take away the sin of the, sin of the people, that there's a lamb in heaven, one who bears the marks of his suffering. Um, based on what he has accomplished on our behalf. Uh, now consider this. Uh, he says, wherefore, holy brethren. Now, you can take that a couple of ways. The, within the context of the Hebrew nation, they were holy in that they were set apart from all other nations. And clearly, the writer of this letter, although he does not identify himself, is a Hebrew. And... So you can see it from that standpoint, you know, set us who are the set apart nation, the holy brethren. But as we've seen in many parts of the Bible, you can't, the Bible has an application far beyond just um, one uh, realm of understanding. Um, there's usually a near view, which is what's going on in that moment, and then a much broader view that applies to um, things that go beyond that time. So, yes, when this letter is written, Holy Brethren definitely applied to the people that the letter was written to. But it also, in a much broader picture, now encompasses 
all of those whom Jesus died for. They have, they are now, they have now been made to be holy, set apart in him, and we're all made to be brethren. And I think this kind of points back to in verse 2, I mean, not verse 2, but chapter 2, excuse me, where um, uh, in, thir in verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God had given me. So now we're seeing that we are being, we've been placed into this group, this larger family of believers, this holy brethren that have been set apart and that Jesus has accomplished these things to bring us together and to make us to be a part of this congregation of the righteous that he has called out. And next it says, it says, we're for holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, I think we have to just stop here for a moment and consider what this means, because the implications are very far reaching. But it's easy just to skim right over it and not to give it the consideration that we should. And I think that's the point of this verse is to make us to stop to kind of look and listen. So we're now been made uh, a holy brethren, a family of believers, but also partakers of the heavenly calling. Well, what is this heavenly calling? What is that? Well, the heavenly calling is a way to kind of sum up the purpose and plan of God in Christ as it relates to these holy brethren. So this heavenly calling is really a big deal. Uh, the eternal decree of God is to accomplish the heavenly calling. So before God created anything, and I'm, I know I'm taking all the things that I've already studied and learned, and I'm summing them up for you. I'm giving you a summation of them. There's several, several scriptures that I could quote that would support what I'm telling you. But in the interest of time, um, I'm going to give you the uh, cliff notes. So um, the eternal decree of God is when God purpose within himself to do all the things that we're seeing being done past, present, future, as it relates to mankind. And we saw in verse, in chapter two, I don't know why I keep saying verse two, in chapter two, we saw that, um, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So that places mankind in the forefront that all the plan and purpose of God is related to his creation, mankind. Okay? So the eternal decree is God purposing within himself saying, I'm going to accomplish this. Right? I'm going to create man. I'm going to redeem man after their subsequent fall. I'm going to bring them... Um, to back to myself, uh, separate from sin, make them holy, and I'm going to 
congregate them all together and present them to the Father. Okay, that's Jesus's role, right? The Father appointed Christ to accomplish this. The Son did the work of accomplishing it, and the Holy Spirit seals those believers in holiness so that they would be brought to that point of full redemption. So that's, in a nutshell, the eternal decree of God, what he's accomplishing as it relates to mankind. So this heavenly calling, that's a way to summarize the end result, right? The process of getting us from point A to point B, that is the heavenly calling. So we have been made partakers of that. Um, I am, as a believer, going to stand in that congregation of believers that are made complete in Christ, in heaven, um, worshiping and praising the Lord Jesus uh, for eternity. I have been placed in that group and made a partaker of that. And that's what the writer is saying. That's who he's talking to. He's saying, hey, you, those of you who have directly benefited from those scars and marks that are in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's done to um, accomplish salvation, to end death, to end the threat of Satan and uh, bring you to this place of safety in him. Uh, that's what salvation is. He's saying you are partakers of this heavenly calling. And he says that we should consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. So we should consider Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what he's saying, that we should have time set aside in our busy day, our busy lives to consider him, right? That's not too much to ask. So we're, here it says he's described as the apostle and high priest of our profession. So what is our profession? Well, we profess Jesus to be God, that he is the savior of mankind and that through him, his death, burial and resurrection uh, is salvation and redemption and reconciliation to the father. Um, is all through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we profess. You know, we profess that with our lives. We profess that in what we say and what we do and what we don't do. That is our profession. So it says we're to consider the apostle and high priest. So first of all, you have to consider what is an apostle? Well, it just means one who is sent. Now, we have apostles in um, the Bible. We have the 12 um, disciples uh, minus Judas, so 11, that were apostles. And to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, you have to have seen him. And he has to have personally given you, send, send you on a mission or given you something to do. So he has to personally send you. So these people today who call themselves apostles, it's ridiculous, okay? Okay. 
It's ridiculous. And if anybody calls them themselves an apostle, well, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to believe anything else they say after that because it's ludicrous. Uh, you can only be an apostle of Christ if you've seen Christ and he sent you. Uh, and nobody has seen him, right? We know that, uh, aside from these uh, people who lived during his time. And, of course, Paul, he revealed himself to Paul. And uh, that made Paul the 12th apostle, and in my opinion. And so they were apostles. Now, Jesus, as an apostle, well, he can't send himself. So who sends him? Who makes Jesus an apostle? Well, the Father. The Father, like I mentioned in the eternal decree, he sent the Lord Jesus to redeem us. So that makes uh, Jesus an apostle, right, of our profession. And the Father is the one who gave him that title. And also the high priest. Now, if you're not familiar with a high priest as it relates to the Bible, I'm going to give you the cliff notes on that as well. The high priest was a very significant office and a prominent individual in the nation Israel. Uh, once a year, there was a high priest chosen to represent all of the people uh, on the great day of atonement. So you had many priests that were representative of God and they did the um, perform the services of a priest to be a go-between between the people uh, of the nation Israel and all the um, sacrifices and the work in the uh, temple. Only the sons of Aaron, they, that was what they, that was their job. They were to teach the people and they were to represent God in the temple. So they performed the priestly duties. No other, um, uh, members of the nation could do that. Only the sons of Aaron, they were set apart for that service. So, um, the high priest is one amongst the one set apart who is set apart for the service of uh, the great day of atonement. Now, basically his role was to go in to the Holy of Holies and, you know, with the blood of the uh, lamb and represent the people before the mercy seat of God and the Shekinah glory of God. Now, if God accepted their sacrifice, then he would come out alive. If God didn't accept this, his sacrifice, then the sins of the people were held against them and the high priest would be killed immediately. Fortunately, no high priest was ever killed. Um, they always came out. God always accepted the, um, the blood on behalf of the people as it looked forward to him being the, the lamb that take away the sin of people. That, that, that blood that the high priest took into that place only covered over the sin for one more year. But Jesus came and he took away the sin of the people, right? His blood took away the sin forever. So that's why it says that he's the apostle sent from the father and he's a high priest and that he represented the holy brethren and the partakers of the heavenly calling to take away their sin. 
Uh, and it says he is none other than Messiah, Jesus. Uh, the same Jesus that they knew, the same Jesus that walked among them. So um, this must be uh, very awe-inspiring, you know, for them to consider. And that's what the writer is saying, to consider these things. Because they were going through some very hard and difficult things. And they needed this consideration to juxtaposition against those difficult trials that they were facing. And we need the same thing. Whenever we're facing something that we think is overwhelming or too hard for us, we need to consider Jesus because um, he has done and accomplished things for us that uh, are far greater and bigger than whatever situation we might find ourselves in. And that, you know, he is our high priest. So if he can represent us, if the Father sent him to deliver us, then certainly no situation is going to overtake us except uh, situations that he has sent to us. And uh, I was speaking to my children about this. We don't realize that whatever trials that come to a believer, um, they're filtered through Jesus. He took the brunt of those trials on the cross and the part, the portion that we experience is um, very minute compared to what uh, he experienced and left scars in his body forever. So just remember to consider Jesus when these things come upon you and to step back and to meditate upon all the, the things that he has done on our behalf. And then you won't be so tempted to fall prey to fear or to doubt because you'll you'll be considering the one who is um, over and above all those things. And verse two, it says, chapter three, verse two, it says, speaking of Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him. Right. So. Um, how do we understand the, the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus? Well, it's difficult for us to understand that because none of us are faithful like that. So it's difficult for us to truly consider that level of faithfulness. So the writer has helped us out in the second part of the verse by saying, uh, who was faithful to him that appointed him as also Moses was faithful in all his house. So now we can understand the faithfulness of Moses because it's recorded in scripture. The first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. Um, he accomplished many great things. He was the deliverer of the people from bondage, from slavery of Egypt. Now we say that very casually, but Egypt was the powerhouse of that time. There was no nation that had the power, authority, and strength of Egypt. And you had a bunch of slaves um, that basically um, put Egypt to shame. I mean, the whole world feared Egypt. And when these, when Moses came and um, through a series of uh, revelations and plagues, that God humbled Egypt. He not only humbled Egypt, he humbled Egypt before the whole world. And so that was a 
very big deal. It it caused many nations to fear the God of these Jews, these Israelites. It's like, who is this God who could bring the great and mighty gods of Egypt to their knees? And so this is this is what Moses did. This is who he's known to be, is the deliverer, the one who delivered them. He was the greatest leader uh, and example that the nation has ever known. Okay? I think it's safe to say that. If you look at all the leaders of the nation Israel, Moses was definitely, he has the preeminence in that um, arena. And the thing about Moses that makes him so special is that Moses led with love and compassion. Um, he was more than any other leader that um, they've had. He led with love and compassion. At every failure of the people, every time they failed in the book of Exodus, Moses stood in the gap between them and the righteous judgment of God. They would try God constantly, tempt him and test him constantly. And Moses would stand in the gap on their behalf and he would plead for God's mercy for the people. And at the time, the people certainly didn't appreciate that. I'm sure of that. But over time, by the time we get to the point that this letter was written, people had a greater appreciation for what Moses had accomplished in his leadership. So here we, here we see that analogy, you know, in verse 2, that Jesus was faithful to the Father that appointed him as also Moses was faithful in all his house. So we see the love and the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ being um, pointed out. I think that is the the part or the picture that the writer is is painting that yes, Moses stood in the gap for those people, but Jesus has done far more in standing in the gap on behalf of the holy brethren because even though Moses was able to bring them through the wilderness and eventually they made it to the promised land, that doesn't compare to the deliverance that the Lord Jesus has accomplished for the holy brethren, for those partakers of the heavenly calling. Uh, he has successfully brought us to this state of holy perfection. Even though we stand now uh, not fully uh, realizing that blessing, it is secured in the Lord Jesus. Where Moses, he wasn't able to enter into the promised land with the people. Why? Because he's a man and because of sin and because of the weakness of the flesh. Uh, yes, he was faithful, but not, not like the Lord Jesus, not like the perfect one. And I think that's the picture that's being painted here. In verse 3, for this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Well, that goes without saying. Uh, the Lord Jesus certainly has earned uh, more glory 
than that which is being attributed to Moses. Now, we don't think about Moses the way these Hebrew people did. To them, he was larger than life. He was a superhero, a legend, and the founder of their their lives and their lifestyle. The framework of their life is built around the law, which was delivered by Moses. Their understanding and knowledge of God, of who they are, where they came from, where man originated, all came by revelation from Moses. So you have to understand the glory that they would associate with Moses, just in their hearts and minds. Um, and now the writer is saying uh, Jesus uh, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. It says, and why was this? It says, in so much as he who had built a house hath more honor than the house. So uh, verse four, for every house is built by, built by some man, but he that built all things is God. So clearly the deity of the Lord Jesus is being you know, um, affirmed here in that uh, Jesus created Moses. Okay, so of course he is going to be worth worthy of more honor and glory than the one that he created. Uh, just it makes sense. So it says in verse four, for every house is built by someone, but he that built all things is God. So I think we need to stop and consider here what's being said. Uh, it says, but he that built all things is God. So that means whatever's going on in your life, God brought that to you. Whatever blessings you've experienced in the past, God brought that to you. Whatever blessings or things that you're going to, trials, uh, anything that you're going to experience in the future, God brought that to you. And he has a purpose in doing that. Right? And we have... Um, a responsibility, right, to understand and to know that God uh, created all things. And it's, it's really easy for us to forget that and not to apply that to our everyday lives. But God has created all things. He has purpose for you to be hearing this message right now. For a reason. You should be asking yourself why. And I don't think the answer to that question is very difficult because he's going to give you the answer. He probably already has given you the answer. You probably already know why you're listening. You know why you're hearing this. You know right now what why he wanted you to hear this particular message based on what he's been doing with you in your life. The responsibility you have now is to believe that and to act upon it. I'm exhorting you to act upon it. Don't doubt it. Embrace what God has done in your life and what he is doing and receive it. Receive this confirmation because all things God 
is the God of all things. That's what it says right here. Verse four, for every house is built by someone, but he that built all things is God. And verse five, we back to Moses. It says, and Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken of after. So what does that mean? So Moses has the historical record uh, validation that he was faithful in all his house, meaning God gave him a realm of responsibility and Moses was faithful in that carrying out those responsibilities as a leader, as a prophet. Um, it says here as a servant, because he was a servant of God and he performed his duties as a servant in a manner that was faithful, right? He believed God. And it was for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. Hmm, that's interesting. So one of the things that Moses did is he revealed that there would be one that was going to come after him. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses told of someone who would come after him. It says, the Lord thy God will raise up from you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. So in Genesis 3.15, we've looked at that. That was the first prophecy of a savior that's, that was going to come deliver man, to deliver mankind. It says that it would, this, would, this savior will be from the woman and that this savior would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So next big revelation we see of this coming one is here in Deuteronomy 18.15. And specifically, it says, not only will he come and be a prophet um, like Moses, but specifically, he's going to come from the Hebrew people. So this looks back to verse 1, where it says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past, unto the fathers by the prophets. So it kind of looks back to that. So we're bringing this thing full circle. So we see the worthiness in verse three of uh, chapter three of Jesus. We saw that. We see, we saw why he deserves more glory than Moses um, deserved, right? Everybody agrees that Moses had a faithful testimony and all that God gave him to do, that he was faithful and that uh, Jesus is deserving of far more glory. We saw why, because Jesus is the creator of all things. So it's interesting that it says that um, Moses was faithful as a servant. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. Well, after what? Okay, what is the after referring to? Well, I believe it's referring to after his death, right? Because a the evidence of a real prophet is that he's able to speak into current uh, things and of things that are to come and that those things are come to pass. 
if a prophet says something's going to happen and it doesn't, well, he's not a prophet of God. But Moses proved his uh, being called by God in the role that he was given because the things that he said that were to come after his death, uh, he spoke into things that were far beyond his life. They came to be. They were true. Um, and, and here we see uh, this prophecy of this prophet that was to come from their midst. And we know that to be the Lord Jesus. In verse six, it says, uh, but Christ in contrast to Moses, but Christ as a son. I think that kind of puts it in perspective that Moses was faithful in his house as a servant. Well, he testified of things that were to come after him. They came to pass and he's definitely one of the fathers of the nation. But Jesus, but the Messiah, right, as a son over his own house. So whereas Moses was given responsibility over uh, or given charge over the word of God that, you know, he was given the law. Um, God gave him the law to give to the people. He was a mediator between uh, God and the nation Israel. Uh, that he was clearly established as that. But Jesus is not a mediator between uh, God and the people only. That's just part of his ministry. Uh, he's a mediator in the same sense that Moses was because in Deuteronomy it says he'll be like me and he'll come from, be raised up from the midst of your people. He'll be a Hebrew He'll be, have a role similar to the role I have as mediator, but Jesus is greater than Moses in that he is a son and not a servant. He is the son of God. The father sent him to um, over his own house, meaning the house that he created. And it says in verse six, whose house we are. So this reference to the holy brethren, the partakers of the heavenly calling, we're, we're being likened to a house that he has built, um, a house that is his possession. Now, this, the second part of that, though, is it says, if we hold fast confidence, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So now we're kind of given a condition. Now we're told that um, Christ is the son of God, that he's over his own house, that he created as the one who's over all things and created all things, and that we are that house, those of us who are the holy brethren. We're told that. Um, but there's a condition at the end of this that says, if... So that's a condition. Well, what is this if referring to? Well, it's something that we as believers ought to be very aware of that there is no um, blanket that covers all mankind that says everyone is part of this holy brethren. There are everyone in the world are partakers of this heavenly calling. That's not true. 
I know that that's very popular and everybody wants to say, well, we're all children of God and this, that, and the other. That's a lie. Those who are the children of God are those who hear his voice. He says, you know, my sheep hear my voice. All the sheep didn't respond to all shepherds. Sheep are very dumb, but there's one thing that they had going for them. They knew what side their bread was buttered on. So every shepherd had a unique call for his sheep and they responded to it. And so Jesus is the same. He has uh, a unique call. It's a call that goes out to everyone, a call of this is who I am. But the chosen are few. There's only certain of those who are going to respond or hear that call. Moses said it. You know, Moses said it very clearly. He said in that uh, prophecy that uh, in Deuteronomy, he said, uh, thy Lord, thy God will raise up from you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him ye shall hear. Right. That's the key is that the call is going to go out, but not everybody hears it. But these holy brethren, these partakers of the heavenly calling, they are the ones who hear. That's the thing that separates them from everyone else. And that's why this if is here. If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So that's the qualifying characteristic of these holy brethren. This, this is a characteristic that separates them from everyone else. It's the fact that they hold fast to this hope, right? So it's very important to understand what that hope is. So this is a qualifying condition that separates us from um, everyone else that makes us to be the holy brethren. Well, we need to understand what it is what that qualifying characteristic is so that we can identify ourselves as members of this holy brethren, these partakers into this heavenly calling. So what is this hope? Well, the hope is the heavenly calling. That's the hope. Um, God in Christ has purposed in himself to call out a people who he has exalted in himself by becoming what they could not be. He has taken on flesh as a man, bore the sins of these called ones who Moses said will hear him, and he has secured them um, by making them part of the congregation of the righteous. That ultimate... Um, place of being right perfect and righteous in Christ in heaven he has called them out and given them this hope and it's insecurity to it's not just a hope like well I hope this chair is going to hold me up it's a hope it's a sure hope like I know this is coming therefore it is my hope I know that I have this right it's an inheritance that's awaiting me. And I look forward to that inheritance with a spirit or a mind of hopefulness. It's that kind of hope. So this is the hope 
that gives us the confidence that makes us rejoice, right? This is what makes us hold firm to the end. Those two things, confidence and rejoicing. That's how we are to overcome the world. Through the confidence of faith and the joy of the hope that we have. That it's worth it. That there's nothing that the world can throw at us that can remotely come close to the hope and the joy of being in Christ. To be a part of that great congregation that he presents to the Father. That he will uh, declare the name of the Father Um, He says, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. So we're going to be in this great congregation and he will do. He will declare the father while he's in the midst of us, not above us, not somewhere nearby. But the picture is that we're all together in this big giant group that he has made us equal to him. Right. He has made us to be his brethren. And together, we're all going to declare um, the glory and the righteousness and the worthiness of the Father in Christ. So that is our hope. And if that doesn't make you rejoice, if that doesn't cause you to, to lift you above your situation or circumstances, then you may not be a part of that holy brethren. That's what's being said here, that we should be, that should cause us great rejoicing. And it should renew in us a spirit of joy and rejoicing in Christ. When we consider all that he's accomplished on our behalf. Um, And it says that we're, that's, that's what keeps us. Until the very end. Uh, the end of what? Well, the we're in the last days, remember? That's what he said in verse 1. Uh, until the end of the age. Until the end of our lives. Um, that is our hope. And that's what should cause us to have joy and rejoicing. Is this confidence, you know, that it's a, it's a surety. There's nothing that can take this away from us. And if it doesn't cause you to rejoice, then I'm going to do like, I'm going to tell you like the letter says, that you need to consider Jesus, the Messiah. You need to consider who he is, what he's done on your behalf. If you are one of the holy brethren, if you're a partaker in the heavenly calling, then you need to consider Jesus, right? He is the apostle and the high priest of our profession. And I exhort you to profess him, to profess him with your life, with your words, with your actions. Uh, We should be professing the Messiah, Jesus. Um, So I'm going to stop here. There's more uh, that the letter of Hebrews uh, elaborates upon this uh, and we'll look into that next time but for now 
Let's just consider the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us. Let's consider his worthiness and let's consider the fact that we have a hope that is sure in him and that one day we're going to all stand together in the congregation of the righteous and we're going to rejoice and praise him for all that he's done. And none of the things that we've experienced in this life will amount to anything except for those things that we've done to bring him glory. So I exhort you to uh, concentrate on that part of your life. What is it that you can do to glorify him? Uh, go to him and ask him, what is it, Lord, that you would have me to do? That's what Paul said. What would you have me to do, Lord? And he'll tell you. He'll tell you. He's, he'll, he tells me. He'll tell you. We all have a purpose in his plan. And there's no greater joy than serving him. So if you need joy and rejoicing, serve the Lord Jesus and you'll have that. Um, let's close. Father, thank you so much for your grace and for your word. Um, thank you for how that you illuminate these truths in a way that otherwise we would not fully understand. And we pray, Father, you would continue to show us and lead us in the truth and that it will glorify you. It's in Jesus' holy and righteous name I pray. Amen.